Good morning, Lake Baldwin. Uh, like TJ said, we're reading from Joshua 9 today. You can follow along in your bulletin on the screen behind me or in your Bibles. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hivites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp of, at Gilgal and said to him, um, said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country. So now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? They said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God, for we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Lake Baldwin Church. Do you join me in a word of prayer? Oh Lord God, our heavenly Father, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, so we pray this morning that you would help us to hear your word, to obey your word that you have for us this morning. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, in 1844, long time ago, Edgar Allan Poe and his wife, they moved to New York City and they basically didn't have any money in their pockets. Uh, but Poe was not worried about this. He was not scared or anxious uh, because he had a plan. He had a scheme that he was going to execute. Now, you should know this. At that time in New York City, uh, the people were enamored with hot air balloons, kind of like we today are enamored with Teslas. And so Poe, he wanted to capitalize on this. So he creates this story about a famed balloonist who travels across the Atlantic Ocean from England to America. And at that time, the furthest anyone had ever traveled was 500 miles. Now, Poe, he's a skilled writer, so he knows something about crafting a story. He knows that he has to create some kind of drama to get people interested. And so he does just that. He creates drama. So on the way over... On, in the hot air balloon, they suffer a mechanical failure, and the pilot loses control. 
But miraculously, miraculously, they crash land in an outer island of South Carolina. What a story, right? Well, the New York, the New York Sun, they, they think this is a wonderful story, and so they bought it. They literally bought it for $50. And so back in 1844, I didn't run the math, but I think it's thousands and thousands of dollars uh, for us, which are probably not worth very much, right? Uh, but they bought the story. Poe had duped the New York Sun, and he did this, why? He was trying to get revenge. Because nine years earlier, the New York Sun, what did they do? They plagiarized some of his work, so he was wanting to get back at them. Now, amazingly, he didn't suffer any fallout from, from duping the New York Sun. And even uh, a year later, he would go on and write that famous poem, The Raven, and then the rest is literary history. He becomes a literary legend. Well, the point of telling that illustration is this. If you tell a compelling story, people are going to believe it. They're going to believe it. That's what we see in Joshua chapter 9 when the Gibeonites, they fabricate a very compelling story. They're going to tell Joshua and the leaders that we are not the people in the land. We're from really far away, which means you can make a treaty with us. We're not your enemies. Make a covenant with us. And then Joshua and the leaders, they're going to buy that story, hook, line, and sinker. And so we're going to unpack this story in Joshua chapter 9 uh, this morning by way of outline. Uh, I'm going to follow the title of the sermon, which is Four Failures and a Future Hope. Okay? The four failures are going to be this, the failure of fighting, the failure of faking, the failure of folly, and then lastly, the failure of fussing. And then we're going to close this out by looking at the future hope. And so if you're taking notes this morning, that's the outline, and then you've probably picked up on this. That's a five-point sermon, Brian, right? That doesn't sound very Presbyterian. <laughs> Don't worry. We're going to get through this. We're going to get you out in time for lunch, but in order to do that, we're going to jump right into that very first point. Uh, the failure of the kings in verses 1 and 2 is one of fighting. Now, as soon as the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward the Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and all the other ites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. Now, I want you to realize this, that these kings that are in the land, just like the king of Jericho, just like the king of Ai, they had heard what God had done in Egypt, what God did at the Red Sea crossing. But in contrast, in contrast to those two kings, the kings of Jericho and Ai, these kings in the land had new information. They had updated revelation, updated information. It came across their newsfeed that judgment was at their doorstep. Jericho was taken. AI was taken. Now, maybe we can give a pass to the, the king at Jericho or at AI, and they may be wondering, well, we heard about what happened, you know, 40 years ago or whatever, you know, in Egypt, and we've got this wall, so... 
I think we're going to be okay. Maybe we could give a pass to them. We can't give a pass to these kings, right? Judgment had crossed the Jordan River and was now at their doorstep. Jericho had fallen. AI had fallen. They had warnings of judgment. And how do they respond? Our scripture says in verse 2, they gathered together as one to fight, to fight against Joshua and to fight against Israel. And the truth is this, if you're fighting against Joshua and you're fighting against Israel, you are actually fighting against God himself. And so this morning, you may be here and God has brought to you his message. He's brought to you his word in various ways. Maybe a friend, maybe family members, Maybe you've had his word over and over. You've heard the word in church. You've heard the word uh, through a song on the radio, and yet you continue to fight him. You continue to resist him. You may be here this morning thinking to yourself, well, I'm not fighting God. I'm really just neutral about this thing, about this person of Jesus. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 12. He says, you are either for me or you are against me. There is no neutral space here there's no neutral space. You're either fighting against God or you are with him. How should the kings of the land responded? What would we have hoped? They, we would have hoped that they would have seen the judgment right at their door and they would have repented. Instead of their hearts melting in fear, instead of them picking up the sword, they should have laid down their sword and said, judgment is coming upon us. We cannot avoid this. We have to repent. Because remember, why is judgment coming upon the land? The judgment is coming upon the land because evil has been done in the land for over 400 years. God has been patiently waiting for repentance, and they don't repent. They respond by fighting. And so the king's failure of fighting is actually a failure of faith. It's a failure of faith. It's a failure to believe in God. And so that's the first failure. The second failure is the failure of the Gibeonites. We see this in the verses 3 and 4, 6, 8, and 9, and it's a failure of faking. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country. So now, make a covenant with us. They said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you? Where do you come from? They said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. We have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt. The failure of the Gibeonites is one of faking. It says in the scripture that they act with cunning. They deceive. They trick. They, they came up with this elaborate story to fool Joshua and the leaders, right? And it's pretty elaborate. They, they, they put on old clothes and old sandals. They, they, they brought with them dry and moldy, crusty provisions. They had worn out wine sacks. And so everything looked good. They probably knew this a little bit about uh, Moses and what Moses had said to the Israelites. 
Back in Deuteronomy 20, if you go back there, you'll see that Israel was allowed to make treaties with people who were not in the land, people who were far off. They can make treaties and make covenants with them, and that's what's happening here. But we know from Scripture that God forbade Israel from making a covenant with people in the land. He was to go in. He was to destroy them. Now, the question is, why why go through such trouble? Why go through so much lengths to create such a crafty story? Well, we see, if you look over in verse 24, this is what it says. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty, a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you, and we did this thing. Why did they do this thing? They were trying to save their own skin. We can't blame them, can we? Now, what is one of the purported reasons they give? It's found here in the scripture where they say, we came because of the name of the Lord your God, right? We heard what he did in Egypt. Now, if you were with us earlier on in the series, uh, when we covered chapter two and we were listening to Rahab and what she said, she said something very similar. I heard what you did in Egypt. You know, you are the God of heaven and earth. So she's, she's confessing faith. So it sounds a little bit the same, right? We heard what you did in Egypt. We're coming because of the name of the Lord your God. And this should be a warning for us. It's a warning Just because it sounds spiritual, it's clothed in spirituality does not mean it is true, right? The the world is filled today with people teaching the Bible, teaching lots of truth, but there is error in it. Spiritual counterfeits bring lots of truth, lots of truth, but they're clothing, they're hiding behind deception, behind false, false words and false truths. And so, rather than fight the Gibeonites, they choose to fake it. They choose to fake it. What about you this morning? Are you faking it? Are you faking religion? Are you just going through the motions, coming to church, acting like you're actually one of God's followers? One of the scariest warnings in scriptures comes from Matthew chapter seven. Let me read this for you. This is the Lord speaking. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, here's the scary part, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So the point is, you may look like a Christian, You may act like a believer. You may say things that a Christian would say, but in your heart you have not been transformed by God. The Apostle Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 13. He says, each of you should examine your own heart to see if you are in the faith. Examine your heart. Are you in the faith? Are you one of his? One of the most embarrassing things I'm going to share with you happened when I was in the workplace. (laughs) Oh, boy. 
Um, I had a great boss. Uh, he was not only a great leader, he became a great, great friend. And uh, we used to do all sorts of things together. Uh, we, we had a love of golf and fishing and all sorts of things. So we'd get up early before everyone else. We'd go, we'd go uh, knock out nine holes of golf. We'd get into work actually before most people would be in the work. So it was great. Uh, we'd go fishing and do the same thing. And then one day we had this wonderful idea, this great idea that we were going to go fish at this lake far away. And so we set our alarms for like 2.30 a.m. And then we drove and drove and drove and got out to this lake and fished and caught lots of fish, and then we drove back, got into work, and I was exhausted. I was pooped. Then we went out, because this was in Austin, Texas, then we went out and had that big Mexican lunch. <laughs> and you can see what's going to happen here, right? So I'm there in the afternoon wondering, like, man, it's one o'clock. I'm not going to make it to five. Um, so what do I do? I did what every employee would do. I started opening up my, work, my workstation. I put schematics up, and I pulled out some books and folders, and I was going through the motions. I mean, if anybody walked by my office, they would think I was deep at work, and my boss and other people would go by, and of course, I'm just kind of like this, doing this uh, with my eyes closed. Well, I was faking it to make it until I didn't because I fell fast asleep at my desk. And uh, the funniest thing happened, my boss, he must have heard me from his other room snoring or something, right? He, he comes over and he's sneaking up behind me and he just, he just, he goes, he nudges me awake and I just bolt awake, uh, totally embarrassed that I had fallen asleep at work. And this is great, my boss, he is just laughing his head off because he caught me sleeping at work, but I didn't suffer anything from it. He took me fishing again, <laughs> just not so far away. I was faking it, right? So the question is, are you just going through the motions? Are you faking it? Maybe your family members, maybe your friends are being fooled, but you can't fool the Lord. You can't fool the Lord. The Gibeonites were faking, but they're faking. It was found out. Let's look now at the third failure, the failure of Joshua and the leaders. And their failure is one of folly. So the men took some of their provisions but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua, he made peace with them. And he made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Now at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And so the king's failure is one of fighting. The Gibeonites' failure is one of faking. Now Joshua and the leader's failure is one of folly. Why is it? Because they did not ask counsel from the Lord. Now how easy is it for us to trust what we can see and feel, what we see with our own eyes and assess Right? We look at Joshua and the leaders and we think, well, they didn't do a bad job, right? They assessed the situation, right? You know, old wine sacks, old clothes, you know, crumbly provisions. Everything checks out. The story checks out. And what happens? They get duped. They get duped. They buy the story hook, line, and sinker. When long time ago, I think I was uh, seven or eight, way before I was a believer, uh, I, I remember this distinctly, um, getting scripture for the first time in my entire life, uh, my aunt 
wrote scripture to me in a birthday card. Uh, I'll never forget it. This is, this is the scripture she sent to me, Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Joshua and the leaders did what? They leaned on their own understanding. They leaned on their own assessment of the situation. They did not trust in the Lord. Because you see, we're supposed to walk by faith and not by sight, not by our own wisdom. And then in verse 16, we see that after just a short three days, what happens? They figure out that they lived among them but then they had to suffer the consequences of that folly for their entire lifetime. One of the commentators I was reading uh, provides this uh, illustration, this example. This is kind of like what we see in ministry, or if you're in counseling or if you're in ministry, you see this happen all the time. Someone making a foolish decision, having to live with it for the rest of their lives. And one of the examples they give is is in relationships, in marriage, rushing forward in marriage with someone that you ought not to be with. One example would be a believer with someone who is not of the faith, right? And Dale Roth Davis, in his commentary, calls this cocky independence, right? Self-reliance, the danger of self-reliance. It's saying that I know better than God. I know better than God, and that is just folly. It's folly. In James 1, chapter 5, this is what it says. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. And so we are to seek the Lord. We're to inquire of the Lord and not make foolish moves. Joshua, his failure was not that he didn't do his homework. He did all the homework. His failure was that he did not pray. He did not pray. He never took it to the Lord. And so that's the third failure, the failure of folly. Now let's look at the last failure, the failure of the Israelites in verse 18. It's a failure of fussing. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. Now, I think it must be part of our human nature, Christian or not, to complain. We are complainers. We are whiners. And now, I'm, I'm betting everyone here this morning, I mean, who here has not complained about either our current president or our last president, right? I think, I think I've got most of the spectrum covered there, right? We're, we're probably all guilty of that. And then what about at the workplace? I mean, yeah, we're talking about sports and entertainment and those sorts of things, but one of the great topics of conversation is how our leaders are so inept, how they continue to screw things up. Well, I read an article recently about SpaceX. They recently fired a number of their workers. Why? Because they were complaining about Elon Musk's tweets recently, right? They got fired for that. It's the habitual nature of people to complain, and especially the people of God to complain against their leaders. 
Now, the language used here in verse 18 is the same language that you might be familiar with. It's the language that's used in Exodus and in Numbers. When the, the children of Israel have left Egypt and they're wandering in the wilderness, what are they doing? They complain. They grumble against Moses. Why? Because we don't have water. And then they complain again. Why? Because we don't have food. And then when we get to Numbers, and they're, they're on the verge of the promised land, and they send out spies, and they hear the report. What do they do? They complain against Moses. They complain so much so that they want to start a rebellion. They want a new leader that's going to take them back to Egypt. They complain. But listen to what it says in Numbers 17. This is God talking to Moses. Thus I will make to cease from me the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against you, Moses. In other words, what God is saying, if you're grumbling against God's appointed leaders, you're grumbling against God himself. Now, we have to admit that in this situation, Joshua and the leaders, they messed up. They messed up. They didn't inquire of the Lord. They made a mistake. But they actually took responsibility that, at that point, right? They didn't allow Israel to attack the Gimeonites. Why is that? Because they had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. They had made an oath in front of the Lord. So they weren't going to break that oath before the Lord. They weren't going to tarnish the honor of the Lord's name before the pagans, right? They didn't want to compound their first mistake by adding a second one to it. And my mom used to say this to me, two rights don't make, two wrongs don't make a right, and that's exactly what you see going on here. And so as God's people, we ought to be very cautious. We ought to be cautious about grumbling against our leaders. Now, I want, to do, I want to say this, that there is a place to bring your complaints. There is a process. There, is, there are ways to do this in a godly way. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about people that are just complaining and they're causing disunity in the body. We ought to be cautious just like King David. You remember King David, how he, he, would, he would not want to lay a hand on the Lord's anointed Saul, Right? He wouldn't want to do that, even though Saul was a terrible, terrible king. He didn't complain. He didn't complain. He took his complaints to God. What did he do? He upheld the office, the position of king in Israel, right? That's the example that we ought to follow. Well, we've seen the four failures, right? Fighting, faking, folly, and fussing. And now, thankfully, let's look at a future hope in verse 27. But Joshua made them, the Gibeonites, that day, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. Now, I call this a fitting curse. It's a fitting curse that Joshua put on the Gibeonites. And why do I say it's fitting? It's because... The Gibeonites, if you remember, they're saying to Joshua, we're here because of Yahweh, because of the Lord your God. And so why is it fitting? Well, Joshua says, oh, you're here because of God? Okay, I'm going to make you servants in his house then. I'm going to make you 
cutters of wood, drawers of water in the house of God. And the amazing thing, the amazing thing about this is that God is able to turn a curse into blessing. And, it, and it's done in this way. The Gibeonites now recognize this. They are now among the people of God. They're among the people of God. And even more so, they are serving at the altar. They're serving in the household of God. Now, why is that so special? Have we forgotten why is that so special? Salvation only comes through the people of God. Think about this. On, the plan, on planet Earth at this time, God is with who? He is with his covenant people, Israel. Everybody else on planet Earth, they're without hope. They don't have the good news of the gospel. They don't have the word of God. They are without hope, right? What are they doing? They're pagans worshiping idols. They don't know anything about God. This is how the Apostle Paul says it in Ephesians chapter 2 about being outside of the covenant family of God. This is what he says. You are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And so to be separate from Israel is to be without hope. Those promises that we talked about, they are for God's people. And so if you're not part of God's people, you're not part of those promises. You don't even know about them. You haven't heard about these promises that he's made to his people. It's the same thing today in the church. To be part of the church of God is a very, very special thing. I want you guys to realize that we have God's word. We have the sacraments. We get to worship him. We have God's appointed leaders to guide us. That's a special thing. That's the way God has ordained things to happen. This is the means of grace that he provides to his people. And beyond that, it's for your children as well. So your children, if they are born into your household and you are part of the covenant family of God, yes, the promises are for them. They are hearing about them. They know them. People who are born outside of the church they don't hear the promises of God. They don't have those promises being reaffirmed to them. They don't see the promises in the sacraments, the promises of good news of the gospel of Jesus. And it's, it's astounding, the story of the Gibeonites. Over a thousand years later, what has happened? So I'm gonna fast forward in Israel's history. So a thousand years later, what's gonna happen? Well, Israel, they're gonna possess the land. They're gonna take the land then they're going to disobey God, and they're going to lose the land. And then the northern kingdom is going to be scattered. The southern kingdom is going to go into exile in Babylon. And now here we are. They're coming back out of exile. They're coming back into the land of promise. A thousand years later. And what do we see in the book of Nehemiah, which captures this? We see something astonishing. We see in chapters 3 and 7, we see that the Gibeonites are listed among the people of God. And more so than that, the Gibeonites are part of the people that are helping to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. What a great privilege to be listed among God's people because in that list are missing family after family after family who are no longer there, part of Israel. But yet we see 
that the Gibeonites are now part of the people of God. And I'm sure the forefathers uh, a thousand years earlier could not have imagined this kind of grace. They could not have hoped for such an outcome. Well, we, like the Gibeonites, we fail. We fail in a variety of ways. All of us fail. We resist God at various times. All of us are faking it at various times, right? All of us are caught in the folly of poor decisions. All of us fuss against God's appointed leaders. But we receive grace. We receive grace, and we see it when we look at God's dear son. Because when we look at God's dear son, we see this. We see that the curse that was meant for us falls upon him. And instead of Jesus being brought into the community of God's people, like the Gibeonites, no, he is cast out of the community of God's people. He doesn't receive peace. He gets cast out of the community. He gets crucified outside of the city gates. Why? So that we, like the Gibeonites, can be brought into God's community. So if you are in Christ this morning, you can rejoice You can rejoice because your failures don't make void the promises of God. They are going to still stand for you. And if he promises that you will endure, that your faith will make it, it will. He will complete his work in you. And if you're here this morning, if you've yet to follow Christ in faith, the fact that you're here, that you're experiencing what we call The means of grace. It's the means by which God brings people into relationship with himself. That is a huge, a huge blessing. I don't want you to ignore that. I don't want you to resist it and fight it. I don't want you to continue to fake it. But do this. Simply follow him in faith. Follow him in faith. And what does that mean? It means leaning not on your own understanding, but leaning with your whole heart on Christ this morning. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we pray that you would rescue us this morning from resisting you, from faking religion, from our own folly, from our own fussing. Rescue someone this morning, Lord, who needs to be brought into the family of God, who needs to be adopted as your son and daughter to experience the blessing rather than the curse. And Lord, we give you great thanks this morning for your son who took our sins upon himself, laid down his life, cast out of the community of God's people so that we could be brought in. We give you thanks for him. We give you praise. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.